All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Today on Making the Argument, we're going to do what I think is probably one of the most important things that we can do, given recent speeches and comments by the President of the United States, essentially accusing half the country of being semi-fascist. If you're going to throw out an accusation like that, you know what we think is important? Let's actually define our terms. What is fascism? What makes one a fascist? What are the characteristics of of fascism, and perhaps most importantly, is fascism more of a right-wing ideology or a left-wing ideology? Stick with us, and we will answer all of those questions on this episode of Making the Argument. If you finish listening to this episode, equipped to respond to an individual when they call you a fascist. I hope you'll let us know in the comment section on YouTube, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and join us in the volley chat at the link in the description at the end of this episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll go back and listen or watch the episode we put out in March of 2021 called Four Reasons Why Fascism is Left-Wing. All right, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay guy. And back with us, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Thank you, and I'm pretty sure that my bees are, in fact, fascists. So they're, they're we, definitely we Actually, that might not be as, as far removed as it sounds. No, <laughs> it's, it's, they, fit, they fit pretty well. Very uh, collectivist society mm -hmm. over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Oh, man, I have been waiting for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, is right up my alley. Giddy. Christian's like, I cannot wait to talk of the fascism. <laughs> you know, that's even worse because my last name is Heinz. Yeah. Oh, no. And then, of course, we have Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like something. I come prepared with many questions. Today. Okay, good, good, because we have many answers. Many answers. In fact, I want to let our audience know right off the bat Christian and I, like, we started this whole thing by telling Tina and Nick, like, we get it. We will probably like dig into the weeds on this. So they have our they they are encouraged to tell us, okay, cool, you made your point, move on. Right? Yeah. So if you if you hear them say that, they're not being rude to us. They're probably just Oh, I I, I found a five hour long video that I was crushed when I heard that we couldn't include the entire thing <laughs> in today's podcast. So I, I, if it weren't for like Hamilton and Tina here, I feel like that Nick and I would be talking about this for like three or four hours yeah, straight up, easy. which y'all could do in the volley chat after. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the first question that we're going to ask, because this term gets thrown around endlessly today is what is fascism? Now, a lot of people automatically think that when they think fascism, what they think are like Nazi rallies. And you can certainly make an L, you can certainly make an argument that fascism was a part of the national socialist agenda of Nazi Germany that it bared a lot of the same characteristics. 
But if you really want to start off with kind of the, the underlying philosophy of fascism, you really got to go to Italy, right? You got to go to Giovanni Gentili. You got to go to Benito Mussolini because these were the first people that really articulated what fascism was as a political philosophy and why they were doing it. And here's the first thing to understand about every single prominent fascist that you know of, maybe with an exception of Franco um, in Spain. But Giovanni Gentili, Benito Mussolini, Hitler, what did they all consider themselves before they became national socialists or fascists? Socialists. Socialists. It's worth noting that Mussolini himself was a member of the uh, Italian Socialist Party before World War One. Yeah. And the reason he was kicked out of the party was because unlike the other Italian socialists who were anti-war at the time and thought that this is, you know, the the workers being pitted against one another, Mussolini was like, this is a great idea. We should have the war because he thought that the war would be a great way to topple the European monarchies and usher in a socialist revolution. And he was thrown out of the party because he ended up flipping to being pro-war. That's another thing that's worth mentioning because when I hear people in America say you're a fascist, Part of the the implication is the idea that, you know, you're pro-war. First off, I'm not pro-war. And second off, Mussolini himself, who was an Italian socialist, was thrown out of the party because he was too pro-war. And when he created... Um, his his um his, his fascist party he he called it fascismo which is basically a, a it, it's a it's an Italian translation for a bundle of sticks yeah. which implies that it is a collectivist ideology that yeah. one rod could be broken but many bundled together you know necessarily well can't and and, be. Th- and that's the thing is like the reason why we the reason why we bring this out is because again the prominent thinkers within fascism generally started off their life as socialists and one of the biggest things that they identified as a problem with traditional marxism um, and socialism was they felt like this idea of the international collective right the workers of the world unite that didn't make a whole lot of sense to them and and, and think of it this way you're a you're a factory worker in Italy, right? Do you have more in common with a factory worker in China than you do with the manager of the factory in Italy? Probably not, right? Because there's still there, there's a whole you know element of, of cultural norms and traditions and history and things like that that tie you to other people. The language barrier. Yeah, that tie you to other people within your community that is not just defined by economic class. Right. So like I, I, pro- I probably still have like Jeff Bezos and I are nowhere near each other when it comes to, you know, economic status. But when it comes to language, when it comes to traditions within the United States, when it comes to, you know, understanding history, like I, I can I can relate to Jeff Bezos in a way that I wouldn't be able to as easily relate to somebody across the world that might share my same economic status. But that's it, like a different religion, different history, different. So one of the things that, you know, fascist, national social, one of the things that they identified was this whole idea that it, it's the international collective, right? It's the workers. Of, eh, no, like we actually we actually like our national traditions and identity, but we still want to incorporate these other ideas within socialist economic policy, within socialist social policy, uh, you know, our, our general hatred for capitalism, in many cases, a general hatred for, you know, religion, not in all cases, but in many, you know, that stuff we want to keep, but we, we think the nationalist, you know, ap- approach to this makes more sense than the international approach. And it's also one of the reasons why international socialists and national socialists so bitterly fought against one another 
because they were fighting for the same constituency. That, uh, mm-hmm. That's exactly what I've said for years, that the yeah. reason that Marxists and Nazis despised each other so much. In, in Germany, they very much did. There was almost a civil war in Germany between the Marxists and the communists, or, or between the Marxists and the Nazis. And the reason why is because they were fighting for the same audience. They 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 were trying to get, at the time when, when the way that you took power was through vote taking, yeah. they were fighting for the same constituency for votes. And so when you have two political parties that are vying for the same constituency, they're going to fight bitterly for those votes. Yeah. And I, the, the, the problem is, is that because these terms are so loaded now, because of the atrocities that were committed by Hitler and by Mussolini as well, different types of atrocities, but nonetheless, both brutal, bloodthirsty dictators that killed millions of people. Because of the actions of these people and the historical context through which we view them today, rightfully so, yeah. it is such a loaded term politically that if you throw out the word fascist or you throw out the word Nazi, everybody kind of immediately jumps to a conclusion of what that means. And it is not a good thing. Yeah. So let's let's go. So the first thing we're going to do in defining our terms is we're actually going to go through the fascist Manifesto. All right. So the manifesto, what we're going through, the manifesto published in an Italian newspaper on June 6, 1919, is divided into four sections describing the movement's objectives in political, social, military, and financial fields. Ready? Here it is. All right. So politically, universal suffrage with a lowered voting age to 18 and voting and electoral office eligibility for all ages 25 and up. Proportional representation on a regional basis. Voting for women, representation at government level of newly created national councils by economic sector, the abolition of the Italian Senate. And it's important to understand that the Italian Senate at that time was kind of was probably a little bit more like the House of Lords was at one point. Yeah, the, the, the Italian crown had a lot of influence yeah, over that. Yeah. I, the, by the way, what's funny is is that the beginning of the the first three or four points yeah, in the fascist manifesto I, I, seem yep. doesn't seem like right. a problem. It's when it gets further now down we, the way for that. The <laughs> formation of a national council of experts for labor, for industry, for transportation, for the public health, for communications, etc. Selections to be made of professionals or of tradesmen with legislative powers and elected directly to a general commission with ministerial powers. All right, Mm so now when you look at those first ones, as Christian pointed out, universal suffrage, proportional representation on a regional basis. Voting for women. Yeah, voting for women. um, That's stuff that, I mean, I think everybody in the United States, if you were to ask them about this, they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, we all agree with that. When you start to get into things like representation at government level and newly created national councils by economic sector, that's where it's like, now you start to see a, a split. Can you explain what that means? So within fascism, what it, what it basically meant is they were this was the process of cartelization. And they're going to get more into this as we go through the manifesto, right? But the idea was is that they were anti-capitalist. They did not believe in just allowing the private sector to function. They wanted direct government involvement and it kind of a democratization, uh, a political democratization, rather than the democratization that naturally takes place within the economy of you just getting to choose who you want to do business with, right? The other thing too is this whole like the formation of Nans- national council of experts for labor. Again, this is worth setting experts. this up, right? Okay, so what about labor and social policy? All right, the manifesto calls for the quick enactment of a law of the state that sanctions an eight-hour workday for all workers, a minimum wage. The participation of workers' representatives in the functions of industry commissions. So this is where you get into the whole like trade union stuff. 
to show the same confidence in the labor unions as is given to industry executives or public servants. Again, this was part of like the trade unionism component of fascism. It was the idea that the workers should have a say in how the company is actually managed. Reorganization of the railways and the public transport sector. Revision of the draft law on invalidity insurance. Reduction of the retirement age from 65 to 55. Now, as you read through any one of those, this is all... This is definitely more left-wing political ideology because it's massive government intervention into the economy. It's the government, massive government intervention into contract law, massive government intervention into private property rights. The cartelization is, I think, a really important point because I I, I don't think that-, that Can you define cartelization, please? Do you want to go ahead? And- yeah, I'll do it, and you correct it if I'm okay. wrong. But so, so what the cartels were is, and and you see this, and we don't mean like drug cartels. No, we don't mean like drug them. cartels. A, a, a cartel used to be the idea that you had several companies that were all involved in the same sort of industry, like automobile manufacturers. And so, what it would be is the government would set up kind of like an automobile manufacturers cartel, and so they would still allow for private ownership, but they would closely regulate how you organized your industry. Who is involved? What the you know the workers had to have, and who could join? Yeah, and that's who could the join. problem: is closing off the marketplace yeah. to more competition. This is why fascism, from an economic standpoint, is really an extension of corporatism. It is the yeah. merger of corporations in the state into a single entity, which is why you could get a scenario where big time players in the Italian economy, major corporations, loved Mussolini, yeah. and the reason why was because he was going to be closing off the market to any competition. And so if you were already a member, if, if you were a car manufacturer in Italy, or if you were an airplane manufacturer, you ran a railroad, you were okay with state control over your sector of the economy because it meant nobody else could come in and compete with you. Yeah. The, the, the government set up these cartels and said, here's all the people that are allowed to produce cars. Here's all the people that are allowed to run the railroads. Here's all the people that are allowed to produce airplanes. And if you're not in that group, you're not allowed to do it. Yeah. The state sanctions who's allowed to do this. And so if you're the Amazon, right, if you're already a big established player, you're going to be invited into the cartel. And the guy down the street that just started his own business, he's not going to be invited. Yeah, think, think of the government, think of the government going in and saying, okay, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, whatever, Snapchat, you know, and then think of it, LinkedIn, whatever. Okay. You guys are now part of the social media cartel. And to be a part of the cartel, you have to follow these government guidelines and you, you generally have to operate in such a way that the government approves of. And as a result, we won't let anybody else come into the cartel. Yeah. Only you guys are allowed to do social media yeah. work. Nobody else is allowed to. Yeah. And so so think think of think of when we talk about this cartelization, that's what we're talking about. The now again, you'll you'll see socialists be like, oh, that's private sector because it's still privately owned. Oh, the best argument that, that socialists will use when they try to say that fascism is right wing from an economic standpoint is that's not real socialism, that is state capitalism. Yeah. And I love no that argument thing. because there is no, no such, such thing, thing as state capitalism. If you ever hear somebody use the word state capitalism, they either don't understand the English language, or they're lying to you, or they don't understand history. Because capitalism, as people know, is an inherently private endeavor. It is the private ownership of the means of production. State is not a private entity. It is, by definition, a public entity. That is why it is the state. And so what you are basically saying is state capitalism, what you're, you're effectively saying is, is public-private. 
it, you can't have something that is both public and private at the exact same time. You can't have something that is both individual and not individual yeah. at the same time. It, it, if something is state cap, it, 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 something that is state capitalism is socialism. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. It, it's, it, you know, they, they pretend that because there's some sort of private profit motive that is still allowed within it. And, and they could, they could easily say that that's not pure socialism because that's not what socialists want. They wanted the complete government ownership or the ownership of the means of production by the people, which always ended up throwing a government apparatus. And so they're saying, well, because we don't have that, therefore it's a form of capitalism. No, it isn't. It's something completely different. It's, it's this, some kind of weird hybrid. It's corporatism is generally it's what it's associated with. Some of these but, actually remind me a little bit of like COP and law. And yes. Like that. Yeah. In we, some ways. And they, so, but, but let's let, let's we got to get through. We got to get through the rest of this. Right. In military affairs, the manifesto advocates creation of a short service national militia with specifically defensive responsibilities. OK, whatever. Armaments factories are to be nationalized. OK, a peaceful but competitive foreign policy. We'll see shortly. That doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Oh, and they it, got the competitive part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In finance, the manifesto advocates the following. A strong, extraordinary tax on capital of a progressive nature, which takes from, uh, which takes the form of true partial expropriation of all wealth. So what they were saying is, is that okay, we're going to do this one-time tax where we're going to confiscate the wealth in a progressive form, right? So if you have more, you pay more, and then we're gonna, we're basically gonna read, we're gonna redistribute gonna it. The we're gonna redistribute it, bit. right? Because that sounds totally like I mean conservative. that that argument like is like straight out of AOC, except she's oh, not yeah. nearly as eloquent. The seizure of all the possessions of the religious congregations and the abolition of all bishoprics which constitute an enormous liability on the nation and on the privileges of the poor, revision of all contracts for military provisions, and the revision of all military contracts, and the seizure of 85% of the profits therein. So what is he basically saying here? We're going to take all the money from the wealth. We're going to redistribute it. Okay, we're going to get rid of any sort of the, you know, the stuff with the bishoprics and a religious congress, seizure of all of their possessions, Right, Regen revision of military contracts and seizure of war profiteering, and and or what they perceive on the as economic side, uh, creation of a of a corporatist system of of economics that's run by the state, whereby the state picks basically favored corporations that effectively get a state backed monopoly within their certain sector of the economy, and also the creation of a welfare state. I mean, you know, it, it, including things like minimum wages and lowering the retirement age and providing for. Um, you know, for, for a, a large welfare state for the Italian people. These were things that, again, in the U.S., the reason that I, I think that that it's so common for people to to try to say that fascism is a, a right-wing ideology is because they will cherry-pick some of these points and they'll say, that's right-wing. But by their own logic, that's like saying anybody that thinks that the voting age should be 18 is a fascist because yeah. it's in the fascist manifesto. It, it, and so, and not only that, the most vocal um, elements of this, the most public elements, the, the the things that you can see very easily, right? The militarization type of stuff. It's easy to point to those things and say, that's a right-wing ideology. But the problem is, is that there's plenty of people on the right that are anti-war. There's plenty of people on the right that are anti-military industrial complex. Well, and there's a lot more here that we can point out and say that's a left-wing thing. 
well, and so if we are if we're just weighing left and right, but one of the things I wanted to point out is the armament factories are to be nationalized. <laughs> so the government has all control over the manufacture of weapons. Yeah. And well, and, 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 and and that's an interesting uh concept because here, you know, we have private factories, private um, you know gun manufacturers. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's interesting to me that 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 really did set them up well, to be able to disarm their citizens. And, and it's interesting because if you look at who this was written by, right, it was it was the manifesto was authored by the national syndicalist, you know, Al, Al, I always screw this guy's um, Alceste Al, ah, de Ambras. And and when we talk about national syndicalism, what is that? Well, when you go when you go on the page, it says, "Oh, it's a far right adaptation of syndicalism." No, it isn't. It's not far right in any sort. When when we say far right in the American political tradition, or we say like conservatism within the middle of American political tradition, that's generally rooted in the idea of the, the ideas within the Constitution, right? Because what are you conserving? Well, in America, that's generally been associated with conserving elements within the Constitution. This this is not, I mean, a part of like right wing economic theory at all. No. Um, th this is this is left wing, but because but because because socialists and Marxists considered to be a perversion of socialism, they just said this is right wing capitalism. This is another phase of capitalism. It's like no, not even this, close. This violates the very tenets of capitalism, which is rooted in the idea of the private ownership of the means of production and a system of voluntary economic exchange rather than coerced and forced. Yeah. So so it's it just goes to show that there has been such a takeover of the terminology when it comes to analyzing this and putting it into certain categories where again. I didn't, I didn't cook the books here, people. I read off the contents of the fascist manifesto. And as you go through that, here's what you find. You find some things which have become kind of universal, you know, universally represented within what you would consider probably like um, liberal democratic li tradition, liberal democratic. And by liberal, we don't mean like modern political liberalism. We mean classical liberalism, yeah. the ideas of individual liberty of universal suffrage yeah, representation yeah. within Okay, we have that. And then we have a whole host of left-wing economic philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and hardcore nationalistic yeah. when it comes to foreign affairs and military. And there's a distinction that needs to be made between nationalistic and patriotic Yeah, yeah. Um, that we might end up getting to later on in this episode. It's worth noting, too, that this isn't just Mussolini that started off on the left. The first yeah. non-Italian fascist party that was founded in France— um, shortly after Mussolini, this is in the early 1920s, um, their founder, um, George Valois, um, he identified fascism because he was a Frenchman. He identified uh, fascism as being an extension of the Jacobin movement yeah. during the French Revolution. And the Jacobins were absolutely left-wing people. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Jacobins were basically proto-socialists yes. in many respects. Yeah. And th this is a unit. Th the thing is, is that because... The allegations of you're a fascist or you're a Nazi usually come from people on the left. They conveniently leave out the fact that the intellectual and historical roots of fascism and also the roots of Nazism come from left-wing political ideologies. There's many things that uh, that we can get to on this, and I know that you're about to get to yeah, the, we're, we're the gonna, NSDAP's platform. Yeah, we're going we're to talk now about the, the National Socialism platform, which is – that's the – the Nazis were the National Socialist Workers Party of Germany. That's that's what they called themselves. And again, they're they're largely associated with fascism, even though 
there, there was tenets of, of Nazism that doesn't necessarily translate over to fascism, right? But because the, the Axis powers and the, you know, kind of the philosophical alliance that you saw between Hitler and Mussolini, those two, those lines have been blurred. Mm -hmm. And you'll see when we read through this, you'll see a lot of overlap, yeah especially on the economic side. Yeah. So I, I'm going to go through some of this kind of quickly. Basically, when you look at like points one through like six, this has to do with like voting rights. It also has to do with trying to kick out the, the uh, Treaty of Versailles because it launched such a one. The Treaty of Versailles essentially said Germany was entirely to blame for World War One, and then there was massive debts that were associated with it, which led to inflation during the Weimar Republic. And so they wanted to reject that. Um, and a lot of this is is very nationalistic, and it's also very racist. Like point four: none but members of the nation may be citizens of the state. None but those of German blood, whatever their creed may be. No. Jew, therefore, may be a member of the nation, right? That's straight out of like point four. So right off the bat, you see the Communist Manifesto didn't say anything about the race. The Fascist Manifesto. I'm sorry, the Fascist Manifesto didn't say anything about like race or, or sex or something. In fact, they were advocating for women's suffrage. Um, when uh, the, the Nazi, the National Socialist Party went right into explicitly like- Explicitly racist. Oh yeah, explicitly racist, was very, very anti-immigration. Uh, they pretty much put right in there that, you know, they had the right that if they didn't have enough land for their own people, that of course they would have to colonize and expand in order to give enough, you know, you know room for their people, et cetera. Um, you know, number eight was- um, uh, all immigration of non-Germans must be prevented. We demand that all non-Germans who have immigrated to Germany since 2 August 1914 be required immediately to leave the Reich, right? So they were very nationalistic and racist, like right up front. They had no bones about it. But let's look at some of the other policies they had, right? So number seven, we demand that the state be charged first with providing the opportunity for a livelihood and way of life for the citizens. If it is impossible to nourish the total population of the state, then the members of foreign nations, non-citizens, must be excluded from the Reich. Right? So that's the idea of like the programs belong to the Germans first. Then you get into number nine. All citizens of the state shall be equal as regards rights and obligations. obligations. And this is where it gets interesting, right? The first obligation of every citizen must be to productively work mentally or physically. The activity of individual may not clash with the interests of the whole, but must proceed within the framework for the whole of the benefit of the general good. We demand, therefore, the abolition of unearned incomes that had to do with work and labor and the breaking of debt interest slavery. So what they were essentially saying was debt forgiveness. Yep. Right. And they were also saying... <laughs> They're also saying that unearned income. So if I buy a property or if I lease uh, capital to you to use, right, that's considered like investing. investing. That's investing. unearned yeah. income, right? You're not allowed to get income. In consideration of the monstrous sacrifice of life and property that each war demands of the people, personal enrichment due to war must be regarded as a crime against the nation. Therefore, we demand the ruthless confiscation of all war profits. We demand nationalization of all business which have been up to the present formed into companies, trust, a nationalization of all industry. That sound like a right-wing philosophy nope. in the American political tradition? It gets worse. All right. We demand that profits from wholesale trade be shared out, right? So this is the confiscation and redistribution of uh, profits. We demand an expansion of, on a large scale of old age welfare. Think of like social security. 
We demand the creation of a healthy middle class and its conservation, immediate communalization of the great warehouses, and they're being leased at low cost to small firms, the utmost consideration of all small firms and contracts with the state, county, or municipalities. So in this, you need to think of like small business Mm set-asides, right? We demand a land reform suitable to our needs, provision of a law for the free expropriation of land for the purposes of public utility. Abolition on taxes on land and prevention of all speculation in land. That sounds like something straight out of Venezuela, by the way. Oh, Expropriation this, yeah. of land. This kind of sounds like eminent domain. It is. It is. It's a combination of eminent domain and essentially the state having the sole authority to, because when they take out the speculation too, mm-hmm. the state now has the sole authority for distributing land. So no property rights. Yeah. Yeah, oh, these basically some of these points combined with the stuff that we talked about earlier is is basically the Nazi Party is calling for the abolition of personal property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Boy, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we demand struggle without consideration against those who act whose activity is injurious to the general interest. Common national criminals, usurers, that's lenders, profiteers, and so forth are to be punished with death without consideration of confession or race. So. No investing, no banking system, no private ownership of land, nationalization of any sort of industries or businesses. What screams right wing about that? I'll tell you the only thing that screams right wing. The left looks at the fascist manifesto and they look at the Nazi party manifesto and they say, these people were anti-immigration. Therefore, anybody that's anti-immigration must be a fascist or must be a Nazi. And therefore... We're going to call them semi-fascists. Yeah. They, they, they point to the one thing on immigration, and they say everybody who's— Well, even then, it's the a perversion. Is, it's a perversion that's between— That's not what we believe. Yeah, yeah. it's a perversion between— Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing, too, because the, the other thing too, and I was telling Nick this before the show, the left has this bit of a circular argument. We can't be—the the left says we can't be racist, which is totally false. Totally false. We can't be racist. Therefore, anybody who is racist is not on the left. These people were racist. Therefore, these people are not left wing. Therefore, my opponents are fascists and Nazis because they are racist. Wow. That it, it is Just a ignoring their form own of argument, especially because it's considering that Marx himself was absolutely a racist. Marx also was anti-immigration. First off, Marx was also anti-Jewish. He had so many lines where he said he wrote a whole treatise called something about on the Jewish question where he said that the end goal of socialism and communism is uh, um, the traditional stuff, the abolishment of personal property and stuff like that. But he also says that it's it's the um, it, it's to abolish the, the Jew from society. Yeah. And it's no wonder that it's about 80 or 70 years after Marx wrote Das Kapital and wrote many of his treatises that somebody like Joseph Goebbels went out there and said that, you know, socialism is inherently anti-Semitic. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the argument that, well, if I'm not a racist, then I'm clearly on the left. And if you are a racist, then you're on the right is completely flying in the face of, of, of history itself. But because large portions of this history are taught by, let's be honest, radical left-wing college professors or history teachers in general, you get this extremely skewed view of history that has this circular reasoning that I just pointed out, right? That we're not racist and we're on the left and anybody that is a racist must be on the right. These people were obviously racist. Therefore, they're on the right. Yeah. And so are you. I would say that's not just me. skewed. Well, it's it's a 
it's just an all-out lie. Well, let's, let's get to a few more of these because there's more. Right? <laughs> oh, the gosh. state is to be responsible for a fundamental reconstruction of our whole national education program to enable every capable and industrious German to obtain higher education and subsequently introduction into leading positions. The plans of instruction of all educational institutions are to conform with the experiences of practical life. The comprehension of the concept of the state must be striven for by the school as early as the beginning of understanding. We demand and the education of the, the, at the expense of the state for outstanding intellectually gifted children of poor parents without consideration of position or profession. The comp, uh, comprehension of the concept of the state must be striven, striven for by, by the, the school. This is eloquent language to basically say the government runs all education yeah. and, by the way, free college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The state is to care for the elevating national health by protecting the mother and child by outlawing child labor, by the encouragement of physical fitness, by means of the legal establishment of a gymnastic and sport obligation, by the utmost support of all organizations concerned with the physical instruction of the young. We demand abolition of the mercenary troops and formation of a national army. We demand legal opposition to known lies and their promulgation through the press. Ooh, like a ministry of truth. In order to enable the provision of a German press, we demand that all writers and employees of the newspapers appearing in the German language be members of the race. Non-German newspapers be required to have the express permission of the state to be published. They may not be printed in the German language. Non-Germans are forbidden by law. Any financial interest in German publications, blah, 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 keeps going on. We demand freedom of religion for all religious denominations within the state so long as... so. So, so long, long as they do not endanger its existence or oppose the moral senses of the Germanic race. And here's where the lie comes that Nazis were Christians. The party as such advocates the standpoint of positive Christianity without blinding itself confessionally to any one denomination. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit within and around us and is convinced that a lasting recovery of our nation can only succeed from within our framework. Just to understand that uh, positive Christianity was not Christianity. And was, I love how absolute they, heresy. in all bold caps, they end with the common, common interest. interest over individual interest. If that doesn't scream left wing, yeah. because I'm sorry, but people on the left themselves will say, say that. that. Yeah. The, the only thing, like the big thing bolded in this is the common interest over the individual interest. And point 25 is... For the execution of all this, we demand the formation of a strong central power in the Reich, unlimited authority of the central parliament over the whole Reich and its organizations in general, the forming of state and profession uh, chambers for the execution of the laws made by the Reich within the various states of the Confederation. The leaders of the party promise, if necessary, by sacrificing their own lives to support by the execution of the points set forth above without consideration. Yeah, they end with the common interest over individual interest, and they also end with unlimited authority of yeah. the central parliament and the creation of a strong central power. How on earth can you read this yeah. and say the Nazis were right wing? What the Nazis were were racist left wingers is yeah. what they really were. Because what they advocated for was the abolishment of private property, the centralization of all power into a central authority. They demanded state control over education. They demanded a welfare state for certain people based on their race, right? So henceforth, they were racist left-wingers. But when you look at the economic and political agenda of the Nazi party's own platform, there's nothing in there that screams individual liberty. Right. There's nothing in there that screams private property. There's nothing in there that screams the freedoms that we recognize in our country that conservatives advocate for. Freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of association, 
freedom to own property. Yeah. None of those things exist in the Nazi party platform. Instead, it, and they, they, they scream it to the heavens, the common interest over the individual yeah. interest. And if you want to find better examples of this, go no further than listening to the Nazi party leaders themselves. And I found this clip that we um, that I wanted us to play in this episode to really get across exactly where they're getting at in terms of economics. And this is something that people in the United States have conveniently been ignoring for probably the better part of 70 or 80 years now. In the 1920s and 1930s, when fascism and Nazism was starting to go in vogue in Europe, one of the things that they said over and over again was, we love FDR. Mm -hmm. And there's a clip that we've got of Joseph Goebbels, who is the head propaganda minister, talking about the whole press thing, the head propaganda minister of the Nazi party. He was one of Hitler's right-hand men, um, all the way to the very end, actually. Um, uh, one of the most powerful men in Nazi Germany. And this is a sit-down interview that he gives with a, um, with a reporter. This is in the pre-war era. And they ask him, what is Germany's opinion on what is going on economically in the United States? This is in the 1930s after FDR becomes president. And we're going to play this. The interviewer is going to, it's, it's a old recording. So you're going to have to pay a little bit of attention because sure. it might be hard to hear it. Um, the interview is going to ask the question. Goebbels is going to start speaking. And then there's a translation where an English translator is listening we'll to what he says. To. Yep. That we're going to skip to. All right. What does the new Germany think of economic development in the States? So Goebbels is going to be speaking, yeah, and then so, we're going to skip to the translation. So the whole question was, is what is the new Germany, right? So Hitler's taken over, essentially. What does the new Germany think about economic development within the United States? Was the question that the reporter asked Goebbels. Dr. Goebbels says that uh, people in Germany are keenly interested and follow very closely the economic development in the United States. And they believe that President Roosevelt and his advisors are on the right way because here we are in fact concerned with the greatest economic problem, economic and social problem which the world has ever had to solve, namely to reinstate in the process of production the millions of people who have lost their jobs in factories and uh, uh, shops and offices. And in order to solve this problem, it is not sufficient to leave it to private initiative, but the government must take the lead. That's it right there. Hmm. I'm wow. sorry, but there is no better. Notice how they never play that clip in school. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you can also read Goebbels. Goebbels kept a diary all the way until the end of the war. And in that diary, and by the way, Goebbels is the exact personification of the type of person that Thomas Sowell talks about when he talks about intellectuals and academia. Goebbels was a professor. He was Dr. Goebbels. He had a doctorate. And Goebbels writes in his diary over and over and over again his hatred for private ownership of the means of production, his hatred for capitalism, and in large part because he viewed capitalism as a Jewish construct. He thought that, 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 that the Jews were really running capitalism and that they were the ones benefiting from it and oppressing the, the worker and specifically the German worker because he was also a racist. And he even says, um, because he started off as a, a way on the left, he started off as, as an adherent to, to socialism and Marxism straight up before he became a Nazi. 
And he even said, because at the time, fascism and Nazism presented itself as a third-way ideology. They said, Marxism's over here, uh, capitalism's over here, and, and we're our own little thing. We're our own third option. By the way, there is no third option. You're either capitalistic or you're totalitarian state-controlled. There is no third option. But they tried to present themselves as a third option. And Goebbels writes in his diary how the the what a terrible choice people have to make between capitalism and Marxism. But I suppose if we had to choose, we would choose to be Marxists. Yeah. And he says it straight up there in that interview that we love FDR. We love what he's doing over there because he recognizes that the government needs to play a role in fixing the problems of the Great Depression because he references those millions of people that are put out of work and that it's not enough to put it up to the private sector. All that he's doing is referencing stuff that's in the, the, the Nazi party's own manifesto. He's keeping true to their own ideology by saying this, but yet somehow they say that Nazism is a right-wing ideology. I've said it before. Nazism is a left-wing racist ideology. That's what it is. So let's go into, so we, we've, heard what, we've heard what the fascists said about themselves within their own manifesto. We've made a distinguishing between national socialism, which had fascist elements, but was also unique within political philosophy. We've explained why both of them, I would argue, are both bad and predominantly left-wing ideologies, right? And we've talked about what Goebbels thought about what Americans were doing over specifically under the FDR administration. But what I want to do real quick is I want to, I want to talk about what were members what were the members of the left within the United States talking about with respect to Benito Mussolini and fascism? So we got this first one here from Rexford Tugwell. He was a, a leading advisor within the FDR administration. He said of Italian fascism, it's the cleanest, neatest, most efficiently operating piece of social machinery I've ever seen. It makes me envious. Adding that, I find Italy doing many of the things which seem to me necessary Mussolini certainly has the same people opposed to him as FDR has. How about the co-founder, um, W.B. Dubois? He viewed the Nazis' rise positively, saying that Hitler's dictatorship has been absolutely necessary to get the state in order. In 1937, Dubois stated that there is today, in some respects, more democracy in Germany than there has been in years past. This is in the 37. We're talking about like that's right, one year before right the before Munich Agreement. Poland. Yeah. That's, that's two years before Poland and one year before the Munich Agreement. <laughs> How about editor George Soule of the New Republic, which is a left-wing progressive um, magazine, which is still, still in existence. He avidly supported FDR, noted approvingly that the Roosevelt administration was trying out the economics of fascism. How about New York Times reporter Ann O'Hare McCormick, who wrote fawningly in the aftermath of Roosevelt's inauguration that Washington, D.C. is strangely reminiscent of Rome in the first weeks after the march of the black shirts of Moscow. At the beginning of the five-year plan, America today literally asks for orders. The Roosevelt administration, she added, envisaged a federation of industry, labor, and government after the fashion of the corporative state as it exists in Italy. Or how about the National Recovery Administration, which was a part of the FDR's New Deal? <clears throat> Under the New Deal report was published stating boldly that fascist principles are very similar to those that have been evolving here in America. I like this one too. Where was it? Um, this was actually said by Roosevelt in 1912. He goes, they passed beyond the liberty of the individual to do as he pleased with his own property and found it necessary to check this liberty for the benefit of the freedom of the whole people. 
1933, FDR again gave his view of Mussolini to Breckenridge Long, U.S. Ambassador to Rome. There seems to be no question that he is really interested in what we are doing, and I am much interested and deeply impressed by what he has accomplished and by his evidenced honest purpose of restoring Italy. How about General Hugh Johnson, who ran the National Recovery Act? He was an avowed admirer of fascism who carried with him a routinely quoted from a fascist propaganda pamphlet, The Structure of the Corporate State, written by one of Mussolini's aides. Under Johnson, the NRA issued its own brochure, Capitalism Labor Under Fascism. Uh, under fascism. It acknowledged that the fascist principles are very similar to those which have been evolving in America. And lastly, I want to read off a section of a speech, and you can all decide who this came from. Ready? If we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at a larger good. I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army, and I shall ask for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis— Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as that as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. Who said that? FDR. Uh, I'm reading the notes, but FDR. Yeah. FDR. <laughs> FDR said it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine. Instead of me saying FDR, I want you to imagine Donald Trump getting up and saying. If we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at a larger good. And I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army. And I shall ask the Congress for one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power. Oh, they'd say semi-fascist. And you know what? They would be correct at that point. They'd be asking for his head. They, they would be correct at that point yeah. when they accuse if, if you were to accuse somebody that said those words of being semi-fascist, that would be correct. Yeah. That would be correct. But for you to say anybody that doesn't agree with me is a fascist. Oh, but by the way, I hold all of the economic beliefs that fascists held. And I'm sorry, but I've got some quotes of my own from a funny mustache man in Germany who also hated capitalism and also hated private enterprise. He said, here's a quote from him. We do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if it is not built on internal social justice. That is Adolf Hitler, <laughs> August 15th, 1920, in a speech in Munich. There is over and over and over and over again examples of Hitler and his cronies and his murderers in Germany lambasting private enterprise, lambasting capitalism, lambasting individual efforts. They, they put it in their manifesto, right? The, the whole collective over the individual. And it, it, it's incredible that today you'll still have people say the National Socialist Workers, uh, um, uh, German Workers Party wasn't socialist, that it's, the Nazis weren't. You see this over and over again, that the people on the left will mock you. If you say that the Nazis were socialist, they will mock you. They'll say that you're an idiot. You don't understand history. It's them that don't understand right. history. It's them that haven't read. None of them have read Das Kapital or Mein Kampf because if you read those two things, you'll see that there, there's a lot of similarities between the two. They both hate private enterprise. They both hate individual liberty. They're absolutely socialists. The, right. the problem is, is that the Nazis were racist socialists and they try to pretend that they're not racist socialists. So therefore, they focus on the race aspect of it and say, well, because I'm clearly a, a anti-racist. And by the way, 
a lot of the people that claim Which to be anti-racist are themselves racists. Mm-hmm. I'll be completely honest. But because they try to pretend that they're not racists and the Nazis were absolutely racist and bragged about being racist, therefore, they'll use that and say, well, because I'm not a racist and these people were, they can't be socialists because I can. That's ridiculous. You can totally be a socialist and be a racist. The Nazis were socialists and racists. But then again, I would also argue that many progressives in the United States that claim to be socialists are also racists. Well, I think it was also interesting that in 1933, a movie also came out called Gabriel Over the White House. Now, this was a Hollywood movie released about a president of the United States who revokes the Constitution, becomes a reigning dictator, and employs brown-shirted stormtroopers, by means of whom he not only declares martial law, but dissolves Congress, creates an army of the unemployed, and lines up his enemies before a firing squad. The movie was made not by a conservative such as Frank Capra, but by Walter Wagner, a liberal Hollywood mogul. In the film, the dictator and FDR lookalike is not the villain, but the hero who by such dictatorial means solves all of the nation's problems. Roosevelt enjoyed the movie and saw it several times, and most chilling, FDR wrote that he thought this film should do much to help. Oh. I've got another quote from Hitler. December 10th, 1940. This is in the middle of the war. He says, After all, there are two worlds which confront each other, and we are right when they say we can never reconcile ourselves to the national socialist world. For how could a narrow-minded capitalist possibly declare his agreement with my principles? It would be easier for the devil to go to church and take holy water. That he's literally saying, how could somebody who is a capitalist agree with my principles? And then he also Mm. says that I agree with people who say that we are two worlds in conflict with one another. That's in the middle of the war. There's, again, nobody ever reads these quotes. When you say... The Nazis hated capitalism or that the, the, the Nazis were socialists. Or if you say Mussolini was a socialist, he literally started off as a socialist, as a member of the Socialist right. Party. And the fact that, that, that this is even up for debate shows the level of intellectual rot right. within the American educational system of how people can go through school and say the Nazis were, were evil, greedy capitalists. Sure. They were not evil, greedy capitalists. So this, so this kind of begs the question. If we're going to be honest about what fascism is, then we have to look at what the characteristics right. of fascism. What, what did the people who loudly proclaimed that they were fascists, who developed the political philosophy, what were the common tenets within fascism? Now, I, I'll even I'll even give a little bit of leeway here because you can also argue that you know Mussolini didn't perfectly apply you know what he claimed to believe in, which was fascism. I mean, like he adapted it. But let's look. Let's look at some characteristics that I don't think anybody would doubt are components of fascism when you read their manifesto. The centralization of state power, right? The, the idea of a federalist system is not something that they were interested in. Um, they, they were all about the concentration and centralization of power within the state. Hostility toward individual liberty, liberty in favor of corporate liberty. So it was the idea that this, this, this um, insistence on individual liberty was corrosive to the public will. An elaborate welfare state to include health care and old age retirement. This was something that fascists were very, very uh, advocated for. State administration of mandatory education. They wanted the state to run the education and they wanted it to be mandatory. Nationalization of major industries. State direction of private industries. So even the industries that they allowed to remain private on some level, they either wanted inside of a cartel 
right? If it had any sort of size or any sort of importance to the state as a whole, they wanted it nationalized or operating within a cartel that they could uh, dictate and control. Trade unionism or workers' involvement in the ownership and management of the industry. Nationalism, militarism. Now, you could argue that the original communist manifesto was, or excuse me, the original fascist manifesto was actually not militaristic, but it, it certainly became that way and took on that, that role. And then later on, because again, if you look at the original fascist manifesto, it was talking about universal suffrage, women's suffrage. However, when Mussolini applied it, it very quickly became anti-democratic or, or against representative government of, of any kind. Now, here's the important thing to look at that last feature, right? The militarism and the anti... The militarism was baked into fascist economic policy because they tried to use the what they call like kind of the moral clarity of war to get people to forget about their individual interests and focused on what was best for the state. Right. And so that that had a, a militaristic quality to it. And you saw that even in the United States under things like the Civilian Conservation Corps, under things like the National Recovery uh, Administration and the National Recovery Act. It was this idea that we were going to use this moral authority and organization. You know, we planned in wartime. We can plan in peacetime to get yeah. through our problems. Well, the other thing that they ended up seeing is that within democratic or representative government, it was constantly standing in the way of your strong moral leader to be able to enact the policies that he needed. And so not only did you see, now you saw that completely manifested within Italy and Germany and Spain, you did not see that completely manifest in the United States because of a strong tradition of limited constitutional government. And not Roosevelt, just, not just voting. It's worth noting that Roosevelt tried to dismantle that because he wanted to pack the courts, yeah. which would have absolutely destroyed any check on his power. Yeah, and he wanted to to override any sort of legal. I mean, he even asked yeah. for overriding any sort of legal authority that would get in his way. The reason that we didn't go the way of Italy was because we had constitutional structures wow. in place to prevent a guy who held the White House for something like 16 years yeah. from being able to turn himself into a Mussolini. And I, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that in today's context, you get this from, again, the reason we're even doing this episode is because Joe Biden went out there just a few days ago and said, Republicans are semi-fascists. First off, Great, great PR move right there, calling 70-something million people, yeah, half of your right. own fellow countrymen, fascist. Great PR move right there. But I've got, I, I, I've got one more quote that I want to read off from yeah. Ludwig von Mises. And I also want to ask, ironically enough, some questions of Hamilton and, yeah. and Tina here, because I know Nick and I have been dominating the discussion. But Mises says this. Hitler does not, he wrote this in 1940. <laughs> Hitler does not have a new secret weapon at his disposal. He does not owe his victory, he's talking about politically taking power in Germany, to an excellent intelligence service which informs him of the plans of his opponents. Much of the, um, even the much talked of fifth column was not decisive. He won because the supposed opponents were already quite sympathetic to the ideas for which he stood. And then he writes, um, and this is in his book, Interventionism and Economic Analysis. He writes, an ideological struggle cannot be fought successfully with constant concessions to the principles of the enemy. Those who refute capitalism because it supposedly is um, uh, against the interests of the masses, 
those who proclaim as a matter of course that after the victory over Hitler, the market economy will have to be replaced by a better system. And therefore, everything that should be done now to make the government control of business as complete as possible are actually fighting for totalitarianism. That is probably one of my favorite quotes from Mises because what he's getting at at the heart is the same, he's effectively saying the same people that condemn fascism He actually concludes this. The progressives who today masquerade as liberals may rant against fascism, yet um, yet it is their policy that paves the way for Hitlerism. Hmm. That sums it up as as best as I possibly could. And and, Mises not pulling any punches. Yeah, I mean, and Mises lived through this, quite frankly. He He knows firsthand. He he didn't have to do the research. He saw it firsthand. And the reason that I said that I wanted to bring you guys into this discussion is because Nick and I could go off for hours and hours yeah. and hours talking about the history, talking about the philosophy, talking about the economics, talking about the quotes, bringing up things from from Goebbels, bringing up things from FDR's brain trust. But in the context of the modern era, which is something that I often forget about because I love to dive into the history books, but in the context of modern politics, what do you think is the most important thing that that – somebody today who's on the right, right needs to get away from this discussion. When you hear somebody like Joe Biden throw out the semi-fascist thing or yeah. you see your coworkers or your friends call you a fascist or call a Republican a fascist, what what is the the approach that we should be taking in order to refute that argument? Because Nick and I will will, will reference history books all day long. <laughs> all right, let him ask. Okay. <laughs> Well, I actually was set up to ask Nick this question, but if I was going to practice here as a response, I would, Nick's already told me this earlier, so I know what he was going to say, but ask that individual to describe fascism and they're likely going to describe, you know, things that don't make up the conservative movement or what we believe. But Nick, I really want to ask you this question. I think you're going to sum this up very well for us. All right. What if if someone were to call you a fascist? What would your, would your response oh, people be? Well, the, called the, a fascist. Yeah, the, the first thing you have to ask them is define fascism for me, and and then watch as they either have no idea what that means, or or they'll say it's totalitarian, or they'll say it's racist, or they'll say, and then you say, okay, great. What do you think I believe that is totalitarian or racist? What? Right. Make make them define the terms because this is one of the tricks that they play constantly is they want to ignore. Everything about fascism, either out of ignorance or out of the fact that they're embarrassed by the fact that they actually agree with a lot of it. They want to pick out certain attributes that pretty much everyone universally recognizes as being bad or evil. And then they want to attribute them to you with zero evidence. So don't start off the conversation by like, I'm not a fascist and here's what. No, no, no. What's fascism? Right. Okay. What do you think I believe that is fascist? What? You know, you voted, racist. For, you voted for Donald Trump. Okay, and, and what, part of, what part of Donald Trump do you believe is fascist? Well, he, the, the way he spoke. Oh, you mean like when he got up with a podium with two Marines behind him and everything went red and he like, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's like, look, you're, you're, they are trying to, they're, they're not actually trying to engage in a debate with you to get a better understanding of fascism or political philosophy. 99% of the people that I have seen throw that term out against conservatives have done so because they want to shut down debate, right. not mm-hmm. because they want to have one. So the first thing you have to do, especially if you're around to the people, is like, whoa, wait, stop. Stop. You just called me a fascist. I want you to define what fascism is. Do it. Yep. Can you do it? And then I want you to define, I want you to explain to me how anything I believe corresponds with it. They likely won't be able to. They likely won't be able to. And that's when you go back like, oh, by the way, did you know? 
And this is the part where it requires some studying on your part. But if, if you see something, again, we're not asking everybody to be subject matter experts on every single political philosophy right. you know, under the sun. Yeah. I'm not asking everyone to study the intricacies of mercantilism, right? But if, if fascism, if, if we're constantly being called that, this would be a great opportunity to take a little bit of time, understand what fascism really is. Because what they're going to realize once you lay out these primary characteristics that we've laid out, is that, okay, so the centralization of state power. I don't want there to be more power on the federal government. Do you? What about uh, hostility to individual liberty in favor of corporate liberty? Or or uh, the common interest over the individual interest? I have a question about like, that. These are the things that you start to lay out to them where you're like, well, wait a second. Where did, what does this sound like? Does this sound like something I believe? Or does it sound like something yeah. you believe? So. I'm a bit confused about something. How can a fascist be anti-democratic or anti-representative government and also be for the common interest over individual interests? This is really interesting. So if you look at the theory behind this, so you'll, you'll notice that once again, in the, in the original fascist track, the original fascist manifesto, they weren't necessarily anti-democratic. Um, but the only way that they can seem to implement their plans is through these Strong men, right? Experts, the experts. Yeah, yeah, strong men, the experts, right? Everyone else. And so what ends up happening over time is, is that democracy or, or freedom, they say that uh, liberal, like classical liberal interpretations of democracy and freedom are bad because they put, they put the emphasis on the individual right. will or the individual well-being when really it's the will of the state. It's the will of the collective. The will of the, the will, people. It's the will of the people. And who gets to decide what the will of the people is? Well, the leader of the fascist or the socialist state. Yeah, they obviously. speak for the people. This is why Robespierre good, stood up. Yeah. The original socialist and fascist in Europe stood up and said, I am the people. Yeah. What the <gasps> oh, my gosh. That sounds like. Our our beloved Faustist. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I am, <laughs> I am science. By the way, actually, um, one thing that we were talking about shortly before this episode, and I know that all of us have some thoughts about this, so feel free anybody to speak yeah. up. Is has anybody noticed? To the credit of the left, the one thing that I will give them credit for is, to my dismay, yeah. I have noticed that there are some people on the right that aren't actually on the right anymore. I've noticed that there's some people that identify as being on the right politically in the US yeah. that take left-wing ideologies like fascism and they cloak it in conservative language. Yeah. And then mm. they present it to Republicans and say, well, you're not a real conservative if you don't support that. How many times have you heard now, now, you know, national conservatism or a, right. or a, a national capitalistic, like, like I've heard so many Republican politicians try to take fascist economics and cloak it in conservative language. Well, and one of the reasons why, and, and, and this is an important thing to point out, it's like, why do, why do conservatives keep getting accused of being fascist? And so one of the arguments that fascism is actually a right-wing ideology is based on the idea that as socialism gained prominence in a lot of places, there was kind of this backlash against the international component of socialism with more of a nationalistic approach. So they didn't disagree on their hatred of capitalism. A lot of times they didn't disagree on their hatred of religious institutions. They wanted many of the same things with respect to, you know, like a social security like system. They wanted, you know, nationalized health. It's just they that wanted, one was more focused on race and one the other was one was more, more focused on and, class. And so what ends up happening is when you have arguments about patriotism, right? Patriotism and nationalism gets conflated as terms. Or when you have conservatives going, you can't have a massive welfare state and massive, you know, illegal immigration. All of a sudden it's, oh, you're anti-immigrant. Oh, and it's because you're a nationalist. Oh, it's because you don't like people that look like you. Yeah, you're a Nazi. Right? And you yeah. can always find some idiot on the fringe that actually yeah. is, 
you know, that will identify as one thing. Like David Duke was a perfect example of this. And William F. Buckley, as he was really starting, you know, he was really starting to popularize the conservative movement, was very clear right off the bat. He's like, David Duke is not with us. We do not agree. David right? Duke is a good example of of a straight up fascist. Yes, of a fascist. And hmm. and because and because he has tried to at times cloak himself within conservatism. Um using conservative language. Yeah, at using times. conservative language, but he is not. Like he's he has been roundly and, and outrightly rejected by the conservative movement because it his it, again his fascist policies, whether it be, you know, national uh, economic policy or is racism or whatnot that that is that has no place sure. within the American conservative movement. All right, I got a couple more questions, right. and if you can do these responses in under thirty seconds, I think it's going to help ev- equip everyone seconds. very oh, well. No, okay, All right, go. Okay, why are those on the left who say conservatives on the right are fascist wrong? Under thirty seconds. Because philosophically, Ameri- the American conservative tradition is rooted in the idea of individual liberty, free markets, private property rights, and limited constitutional government. And none of those, all of those things are antithetical to fascism. And in fact, if you turn it around and you look at what most people on the left want, it's far closer to their vision for America than it is ours. What are the most common characteristics between fascism and leftism? It, state control, uh, state control of the of uh, the economy, state control of education, state control of healthcare, state control of the welfare state. It, it's it, and again, the left will argue that well, it's through democratic processes, therefore it's not fascist or it's not you know socialist or whatnot. Well, no, that that may be one characteristic where they don't share the same similarities. But if you look at these things in practice, look at every state that that massively depends on this sort of government control of the economy, it almost always ends up destroying mm. any sort of democratic or representation or representative government in the process. What does the left hope to achieve by describing us as fascists? Shutting down the debate. If fascism is inextricably linked to Nazism in most people's mind, and if there's one thing that every person knows in the West, absolutely without a doubt, Nazism are evil. And guess what? That's correct. Nazi mm-hmm. philosophy is evil. But if I can then get all of my political opponents to be tarred with this moniker that doesn't properly describe them in any way, shape, or form, then I can shut down debate. And not only that, but I can open up a whole different world because not only it's not as if we disagree on tax policy now. You're evil. You have evil intentions. Right. You're racist. You're bigoted. You're sexist. And you're going to hurt people. And we got to do everything we can to stop you to include using violence if necessary, and that's where you see Antifa. Which presidential administration was the most fascist and why? Probably Wilson or FDR. Oh, yeah, it's got to be one it, of those it would be It would be a toss-up between Woodrow Wilson and FDR because if you look at what they actually did, um, one, both of them were unrepentant racists, especially Woodrow Wilson. Oh, yeah. Um, Woodrow Wilson was, was the first president to come in and, and openly critique the Constitution as limiting the power of the executive and thought that government should be run by essentially the scientific state. He wanted mm-hmm. a series of experts that were going to run the country. So, yeah, I, I would say it's probably Woodrow Wilson and then FDR is probably I mean, second. if you want to have like a guy coming in for bronze, you could say maybe LBJ with the Great Society. But he doesn't really hold a candle to FDR and Wilson. I would say Wilson for the intensity, FDR for the length, because FDR was in office way longer than Wilson. Okay, last question. Why is American conservatism antithetical to fascism? Because as we just described, if you look at, go look at, let me put it this way. I always tell people that there's there's two ways that you can judge an ideology. You judge the ideology by the doctrine first. What does the ideology claim to believe? And then you can also look at its application, right? Have people tried to faithfully apply? When, when someone attempts to faithfully apply the doctrine, 
right? That is also a referendum on whether or not the doctrine works. But the first thing you look at is the doctrine itself. So that's why I didn't go into, you know, Jonah Goldberg or, or Paul Gottfield's or, or Ludwig von Mises' definition of fascism. Right. I went straight to what did the, the fascists source. say about themselves, right? So that, that's the first thing that you identify. And who did they praise? Yeah, that's the first thing that you identify. Then you can also look at the application. Did it have positive results? Did it have negative results? Right? Were those negative results a feature or a bug of the system? Mm -hmm. Because you can find any good system and find bad practitioners. That doesn't sure. mean the system is bad. Yeah. All right? But when I look at the underlying philosophy of fascism, I don't see respect for constitutional limitations on government power. I don't see respect for individual liberty. I don't see respect for private property rights. I don't see respect for free market economics. I see the opposite of all of those things. So to be a conservative in the United States, what are you conserving? You should be conserving the principles articulated within the Declaration of Independence and within the Constitution, at least those foundational principles which inform both of them. And again, as I said before, that is individual liberty, it is personal responsibility, it is free market economics, it's private property rights, and it's limitations as a necessity, limitations put on government power through the Constitution and a representative process for deciding who will represent us within Washington, D.C. or our local and, and state um, institutions. All right, last question, and I didn't prepare this one but how did how have fascists in history communicated in such a way that the people believed that those individuals had their best interest at heart this is a great question almost every single time what you saw was a country that was going through enormous economic and political crisis mm -hmm. so with the weimar republic they had just come off of losing world war one it was it was absolutely devastating for them um you, you had uh, massive inflation within the Weimar Republic. It's one of the common examples that are used to talk about the devastating effects of inflation. You had a national population that was essentially, um, that, that had gone from uh, decades of being prominent within the European theater and, and saw themselves on the rise and on the ascendancy, and then all of a sudden it was over. They were destroyed, they were occupied, they were deeply in debt, their economy was in shambles, and they were looking for someone to provide them direction on how to get out of it. The extremist ideologies, authoritarian yeah. extremist ideologies take power in times of great crisis. I, I would also so, say- So basically would, it's fear. Fear. Fear was a huge component. Fear and uncertainty were huge components of it. The other thing too that I would add to this, neither Germany or Italy, this is going to kind of sound weird, but neither, but especially none of them had a, what you would call a tradition of individual liberty or strong representative government or limitations on government power. They, they did not have a strong Republican tradition. Neither of them had any sort of tradition. And I don't just mean a Republican tradition in the sense of a Republican form of government, because you look, what about Rome? Well, that was like literally thousands, <laughs> thousands of years of, earlier. Yeah. What I'm talking about is that both of those nations, they were used to looking towards some centralized power in order to make things better yeah, or to it, control the system. So it... it that's, that's one of the reasons, too, why what we have in this country is so incredibly powerful is that there is this tradition within the United States that we don't first look to government to solve our problems. We first look to our own ability to be able to operate within a free system, whether that be politically, but especially economically and socially, in order to solve issues and problems and overcome challenges and work together. We don't automatically look for a strong man to fix our problems, but I'm terrified that we are currently educating our children and setting them up in such a way that that's exactly what they do. Oh, it's even more dangerous than that because on the social side, the economic stuff, there's plenty of people that are totally ignorant of economics, but they know what their principles are when it comes to social issues, which by the way, I hate that term. But 
one thing that I've noticed on the left, and I've said this earlier in this podcast, is that a lot of these people on the left that claim to be anti-racist are themselves racists. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people that claim to be social justice warriors want to inflict social injustice on people. I mean, the Constitution outlaws things like blood libels and persecuting a son for the right. sins of the father. And there's people on the left that do not believe that at all. They, they, they have this idea of a just society that involves inflicting punishments on people based on their status Ancestry. as a member of an impressor class, mm -hmm. based on your race or your gender or how much income you have or your age or whatever it is, things, things that some, many things that you can't control about yourself. Um, and I'm sorry, but couple that with a socialistic view of economics, it, it, it is no surprise to me that if certain individuals get in positions of authority in the United States that I, I hear from people all the time that, that, you know, we can't experience what happened in Germany or we can't experience what happened in Italy and, and, and a different form of experience. I don't think that, that people that believe in fake Aryan supremacy are going to take over the United States. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. But people that do believe in the inherent economic and social fabric that was woven into the fascist ideology that was woven into Marxism, that was woven into Nazism, people that share the same worldview, not explicitly, but in the broader sense, those people can absolutely come into power in the United States. And if it weren't for our checks and balances and system of government, they would have, some of those people would have already done way right. more damage than they already have. There's what been a lot of, of headway though made to that end. And that brings, I just have one question. Absolutely. And that is, let me frame it up before you answer the question. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where people have forgotten what a fascist really is? How did we get to the point where they've forgotten what socialism really is or, or why it is that they can say, oh, well, this is democratic. And then, and then whatever uh, regime that is ditches the democratic part and why it's always mass, mass, um, exterminations of, of people, you know, the idea that we can, we can, um, go, well, it, socialism just hasn't been done right. Or this hasn't just, it just hasn't been done right. When you have something that favors the collective over the individual, it necessitates that you get rid of anybody who disagrees. And how do they get rid of people? That's well, why these people have exterminated. But what I want to know is, why is it that so many people don't know what this is? Or why is this information so readily available yet nobody seems to know it anymore? Because your, your cultural and academic institutions are essentially run by people of a left-wing ideology who have a favorable view of socialism, have favorable view in some cases of even Marxism, and it was an absolute truth in their minds that fascism and Nazism was the opposite of socialism and Marxism. And so because the Soviet Union and Germany fought and then the Soviets lost 20 million people killing, you know, or, or fighting back against Nazi Germany, th there was a there was a very good, easy argument to be made that these two things were, were, were different and that fascism, of course, was, was right wing because it fought against Soviet communism. And, and so, of course, these things were different. And but again, if, if you have, if, if the vast majority of your people within your academic and your, and your cultural institutions of influence, whether it be the media, whether it be Hollywood and entertainment, you know, when it's people like Will Durante and stuff like that that are going over to the, you know, uh, 
or we, you had, well, I think it was Lippmann that went over to the Soviet Union and said, I've seen the future and it works. It was Will Durante that covered up, um, you know, Stalin's, you know, worst atrocities in, in, in the New York Times. He actually ended up losing his Pulitzer Prize over it. Um, when it when it fully came out because of people like um, I think it was Malcolm Mulgridge, Mugridge and others, but if the people teaching your kids and the people people writing the stories that we inevitably look to to give us some sort of context and larger narrative about what's going on in the world, if they have a particular ideology and that ideology is going through and that ideology is fascism is over here associated with the right, and and leftism is is more about just compassion and understanding and, and trying to make a better justice. trying to make a better world for all of us yeah. and sometimes we have good leaders that do good things and sometimes we have bad leaders like Mao or Stalin that do bad things but ultimately the ideology is 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 wonderful and I, think, what, I think what, the question you're asking is how did such complacency become present well, oh, there, oh no, that, no, 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 no that's an easy one because we defeated yeah. fascism and nazism on the battlefield I, and so therefore we didn't feel the need to study what they're advocating right. for because we view them as a dead ideology. I, I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, and, and 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 it was as if this was the this was the final nail in the coffin of, of of Marxism and this sort of political ideology. Like, how could anybody be so stupid as to think that this was a good idea? While at the same time, people that believed in those things from the Frankfurt School were were influencing. Academia. Our education departments. This is one of the, I had, I had somebody come up to me the other day like, Nick, I don't understand how we could be this way in our schools. I'm like, how could we not? Like when, when all of the credentialing organizations that have the most influence about what your school is going to look like 10 years from now believe in these ideologies, how could you be surprised? And the reason why is because, well, that's not what I experienced. What you experienced is gone, my friend, right? It, it's who's controlling it now is going to decide what it looks like in the future, and so, yeah, when you had a whole bunch of people that had come back from World War II, you know, fighting this stuff and, and, and were, were rooted in, in certain core ideas, then, yeah, of course, it was just part of the cultural fabric that this was, this was nonsense. But that wasn't the cultural fabric within your academic It might be worth in the future doing it our own because we, we've just done an episode on fascism and Nazism. It might be worth doing an episode on Marxism and socialism and explain – what okay, so we've talked about what fascism and, and Nazism is, and also how did it become popular? What were the origins of it? Who were the people advocating for it? It might be worth doing yeah. the same thing for Marxism and socialism, and also answer the question of how did it get into academia and into the media and into the, the minds of so many mm -hmm. of our countrymen and women through kind of like like through the back door because as Nick said 40 years ago people thought that Marxism was dead. Yeah. And the, it's clearly not. The problem though is is this. We're talking about a whole bunch of labels mm -hmm. and the left really loves to throw around labels and they love to reattribute labels and give give old labels to new ideas or new ideas to or new labels to old ideas. Yeah. And Here's what I think at the root of some of this is that behind a label is the actual product, right? Yeah. Be underneath um, whatever's being presented, the name of it is an actual substantive, you know, what they're selling you, okay? Yeah. And the problem I see is that we have 
these labels thrown around with this assumption that everybody knows what that is and they just automatically see a people group or they automatically see an atrocity, but they don't see what was their manifesto? What did it say? What was their party platform or whatever it is? I have people who think that they're Democrats who have never looked at the Democratic Party platform. I I know people who are Republicans who have never looked at the Republican Party platform. And that's the problem is I I feel like a lot of folks have gotten to the point where whatever the authority says, I'm going to go ahead and just repeat that. And I'm not going to worry about what, well, what's actually underneath this? Let me dig around a little bit and actually analyze this for myself a little bit. My biggest concern with America is that the vast majority of citizens never question that the state may not be the best person to handle problems. Mm-hmm. And you have a generation upon generation going to public schools yeah. where the government funded education. Now they're funding higher education. They, they you know pave the roads and do everything and are involved in every aspect of our life. And people don't stop to think, well, you know, maybe the government's not the best pl- person or entity to solve this problem. And so social security, government programs, more funding for education, college bailouts. I mean, it, it, to, to the vast majority of people, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Well, the, the, the government also has a huge knack or people that believe in that have a huge knack for taking away other options presenting you with the only option that you have left and saying, well, without us, you wouldn't have any options. You know, what's your solution? And and a lot of times what you have to do in order to get people to kind of snap out of that is, and here's one of my favorites. I always take, I always take this, my phone and I say, okay, let me ask you a question. What do you think your smartphone would look like now? Had it been created, managed and monopolized by a government agency? If, if Mussolini got in his way and created a telecommunications cartel, right? It's just the, it's, it's the, United States government communications cartel. What do you think this phone would look like? Well, I can I can give you an idea of what it would look like. It would probably be the size and weight of a brick. It would have a battery life of about 30 minutes. It would do nothing except make phone calls. And probably only the wealthy would be able to afford it. And have but no reception. I disagree <laughs> on one point. It would also have tracking yeah. and, <laughs> right, right. and and. The would NSA have would have a direct link. It would definitely have tracking. It would I, definitely have tracking software. By the way, but, but I, here's here's the other here's the other thing too. I want to point out, and this goes to your, your whole idea of labels. Um, I, I once I, I once observed that it's something of a a sad tragedy that the people that hate free markets the most are the best at marketing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. They, socialists they, are great marketers. They, they, they really they are, are such a good job at rebranding um, because oh, they're so. Speaking of of marketing, I've got one more line from Mises that I found. Nothing could have been more helpful to the success of the National Socialist Movement, Nazis, than the methods used by the progressives denouncing Nazism as a party serving the interests of capital. Yeah. Talk about marketing. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I do think that that's actually quite funny and also really telling that like socialists for their hatred of private property and free markets and and you know the exchange of goods and services without a government controlling it, they're great at marketing their ideas because what socialists promise is basically a post-scarcity society. Yeah. And who yeah. doesn't like to live in a utopia, yeah. right? They promise heaven on earth, but they usually deliver hell instead. So, I mean, 
you know, it's it's as simple as that. I know that you're about to wrap it up, but I I'm going to ask for one more time. Christian, that just we do an episode on like the history of like Marxism and socialism and why I, so and many with people. That, I'm gonna go, and with that, I'm going to go to our I'm going to go to our audience on volley. If you don't know what oh. volley is, if you don't know what volley is, you can actually go into the the notes for this page. It'll show you how to sign up for volley. If you would like, first of all, if you liked this. Um, episode. If you think we did a good job, if, if you feel equipped, please let us know in the comments, especially let us know in the volley chat. If there's anything we missed with something we could have done better, please let us know that as well. And also weigh in on whether or not you would like us to do a similar episode talking specifically about socialism and Marxism, uh, because that's we actually had a floor debate between me and the only elected socialist in the Southern legislature. Uh, this was a couple years ago. Lee Carter and I had a, had something of a debate on the floor about this. Um, but if you think that would be beneficial, please let us know. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.